Hello again, friends. It is your host, Chad Prevost. This is the Big Self Podcast. We are so delighted to have you joining us today. You know, we've been talking about the Enneagram. We've been coming at the Enneagram and burnout and stress, amongst other things, from a variety of directions. And a couple of episodes ago, we were venturing into territory that, while meaningful and deep and profound to us in the spiritual territory, we know that that may not be everyone's cup of tea or motivation for listening to the Big Self Podcast. A lot of times you're here to hear about the psychology. And of course, always you're looking for tools, you're looking for things to improve your life, to develop your self-awareness. And the good news is you've come to the right place. We are all about it. And today, we're talking about the psychological roots and some key patterns that tend to create stress for each Enneagram type. I'll go ahead and just say that in episodes 74 through 84, we visit with each of the nine types and we hear what they have to say about being each of the nine types on panels. And even more recently, from December of 2022, I discussed the Enneagram and stress for episodes 114 through 116, going from each center of intelligence. So if you're mostly looking for characteristics and broader type descriptions or the passions and the virtues, I would begin in those directions. Today, we're focusing on psychological roots and key patterns for each of the nine types. And this work largely comes from my recently released book, Shockpoint. Shout out here, little plug. Shockpoint, the Enneagram in Burnout and Stress. It's, it also covers all 27 subtypes. So I invite you to check it out anywhere books are sold through the global online marketplace. You can get a physical copy, you can get an ebook. And I want to say, that I owe a big debt of gratitude to my mentors like Beatrice Chestnut and Yoranio Pius, Ginger Lapid Bogda, and Jerry Wagner for their teaching, their practice, and advocacy of ethical Enneagram applications. And I will mention Claudio Naranjo several times in uh, as we discuss these types, and his contribution to the field cannot be overstated. I believe he was born in 1933. He passed in July of 2019, and he assimilated many of the applications and the spiritual practices into the psychological work that we understand today. You should check him out sometime if you're curious. But finally, we're covering this information. Why are we covering it? Well, it's a part of the Big Self podcast here for three reasons that I can think of. And one is towards this larger goal of increasing self-awareness. So if you are able to assimilate this information in your head as knowledge... It's going to be more possible for you to integrate your dispositions into your working knowledge of your self-observation practices, which will lead to your self-inquiry, which will lead to integrated changes in your transformed personality through self-development. And two, it's good to know about others in order to be able to communicate most effectively. So understanding others' dispositions, especially their relationship to stress and their, and their interpersonal relationships can help enormously. So whether you're a leader or a manager or 
literally anyone, you want to know how others are functioning too so you can communicate with them better. And finally, three, it gives us all compassion for ourselves and each other which is one of the most important principles to recognize when beginning this work. Be gentle with yourself. Okay. So with that said, let's begin looking at, let's start with eights as we, we like to do, starting with the body types going eight, nine, one, disrupting the chronological pattern. So psychological roots and key patterns that create stress for eights. So generally speaking, we see the psychological roots and key patterns that create stress for eights emerging from early experiences of feeling powerless. So eights who have done a good bit of inner work report issues revolving around not getting their needs met in childhood. And sometimes these experiences were traumatic enough that they internalized the need to be strong as a coping mechanism. And often we see AIDS with these histories of having to take on big early responsibilities, including but not limited to taking care of themselves sometimes others as well. Sometimes they found themselves in a combative environment. Sometimes that was related to their parents. Also, it could be competition and combative with siblings, or it could also be with peers. But so what we're seeing is in eights, at at a very early formative stage in their personality development, which as we, we know tends to be formed by the time you're seven, with huge things happening before 18 months, you know, but it's pretty formed between the ages of, you could safely say, five and seven. So we see from an early formative stage in, in this development, this ego construction, that AIDS have founded an identity on being strong no matter what. So if you, if you aren't strong enough, then you're weak. And it's black and white. It's either or. And it's you know, in part explains why AIDS handle pressure and heavy amounts of work with what appears to be relative ease compared to most other types. But at the same time, this denial of vulnerability can act, uh, it, it can become distorted and unhealthy patterns into more addictive-like forms of behavior. And the end result is that you're kept trapped and looping in repetitive behavior, which, you know, by its very nature is going to keep you stuck. So sometimes in coaching, we will see AIDS, you know, they'll begin a session feeling overwhelmed. And then, you know, they'll, then after, you know, the session, they feel this relief and their awareness is, has gone up and their takeaways are, are, you know, just, I'm feeling really good and heard and understood. And I know what I need to do. And then they go and they gear up and they feel sort of ready to just jump back into the very stress they've been in all along because it's just their pattern. It's their default. And in a way, when you feel truly stuck and don't have control over your environment, this denial of vulnerability, denial of emotions certainly can help you function. But for any type, and it is very true for AIDS, deep down, it makes you feel very bone deep tired. And when AIDS begin to do inner work and stop denying their stress, they begin by degrees to recognize how tired they really are. So, you know, their key pattern in stress, they they will take great pride in their ability to be super tough and possess a great deal of energy moving forward in this like confidence that is really 
admirable. Like to a lot of us looking around, we're looking at the eight and we're like, man, you just don't even, you don't even turn around to like worry about if you've hurt anybody's feelings. You're just going, right? <laughs> it, it can be quite impressive. But AIDS, you know, they should shift their mindset. Everything doesn't have to be big and consumed with this lustful type of intensity and strength. And one huge message also to AIDS is you shouldn't need a physical problem to know that you should slow down. Okay, so psychological roots and key patterns that create stress for nines. Nines, they often report that they grew up in these environments where they felt overlooked. And their opinions, their preferences, feelings, they just weren't as important as some of the others in their family. And we, we, you know, we believe our middle son, Lucas, is a self-preservation nine. And yeah, it sometimes saddens us that Lucas must have felt like the typical lost middle child, especially in that my co-host Shelly is a middle child herself. But, you know, Lucas did find himself wedged between two pretty intense siblings, intense at least in making, knowing what they needed and, uh, and, you know, sometimes maybe taking up a lot of oxygen. But at least we are now aware of, you know, through the Enneagram work, like as a family, we're aware of some of the sources where his personality emerged and we can make sure now to let him know that we value his opinions. We want to know his feelings. And he, you know, for his part, he's growing into being more comfortable with asserting himself with us. And we, we, when we hear him uh, talking with his friends, from what we can tell from afar, he's doing the same thing. He's asserting himself with his peers So, so, you know, sometimes he may like make his preferences known in a nine fashion by kind of not being the only one not coming to the dinner table or coming when coming to dinner when it's almost over or saying yes, but it's really a disguised no. (laughs) And like the the kitchen, you said you were going to unload the dishwasher and you're not doing it. And, you know, we're learning to roll with his style. Another thing about nines that we see a lot, as well as in our son, Lucas, is that they are easy to be with. There's just something about Lucas's personality that just makes you want to be near him, even if he isn't saying or doing anything. And I think that that is true for the the disposition and the nature of nines. And as children, nines had a sensitivity in the early differentiation stage, which involves negotiating the tension between connection and belonging to others and in that separating. And so differentiation, it's the experience of children who continually reconcile their innate desire for independent, autonomous existence with this equally powerful impulse to Reimmerse themselves in the enveloping world from which they've come. It's this, you know, wanting to be back in the womb, but also wanting to be free. And so for nines especially, this separation was painful in a particular way that makes them want to remain merged or to recreate the conditions of merging to experience that union. And it's also why they may tend to forget themselves or dissociate from the experience of, say, not being held when they still needed it. And it could also mean that they were not recognized as a separate and independent entity that belongs to the group at the same time. So there was maybe some discomfort in this merging. So sometimes nines especially when they they zone out and just sit around passively on the couch. Interestingly enough, that actually can create more stress for them. And, And partly this is because they are ignoring their needs. 
They aren't tuning into the way their emotions are wanting to be processed, often in anger or sadness. And that very inactivity can snowball into creating more stress from the stress they're already feeling and avoiding. Okay, so the last of our body types, psychological roots and key patterns that create stress for ones. You know, no one wants to be called anal, but in terms of how the term has come into the parlance of our times, no other type defines one better. And like all body types, ones had an intrinsic need for holding. That's what we get out of the body types. They had an intrinsic need for holding. We'll talk about with the heart types needing mirroring and head types needing practicing. But the core issue around the need here for ones was for structure and adherence to the rules and the standards. And it's seen as a reflection of unmet needs that supported a stable holding environment at an early age. So ones often report having felt a need to control and, and, and conform their behavior to the structures or the expectations of others. And so unlike their neighboring wing nines who seek to merge in order to maintain a sense of this inner cohesion and comfort, ones adhere to correct behavior, um, cor- you know, being doing things the right way, correct standards. And most ones, they tend to report that they took on responsibility too early, similar to eights in a little bit of a different way, but an early taking on of responsibility. And so whatever the roles or responsibilities that they had, uh, they had this early unmet need of, of wanting to be recognized or acknowledged for how hard they were working and how hard they were trying to be good and do the right thing. And, and the composition of that, of, of, that, of those excessive demands and, and little acknowledgement, so that there is a sense of constant frustration at not getting what they need and, and what they're striving so hard for. So in stress, as with all types, you can see the doubling down of what they unconsciously tend to do. So ones can become especially self-critical of themselves and of others. So, you know, ones act there, they may be probably one of the most discussed types in the psychological literature of the past century, maybe century and a half as this obsessive type. That's how they're generally referred to. And they're also perhaps maybe the most overrepresented in films and literature. And all you don't have to think very far. You can think of someone who comes to mind immediately is the character of Melvin Udall, played by Jack Nicholson in As Good As It Gets. And remember his obsession with hand-washing before he would you know, leave and he'd have to do the bolts and the locks a certain way. It was, there's was a ton of uh, what we call OCD behavior, obsessive. So importantly, though, uh, it's uh, not just a case of repressing passive oral needs that creates these self-reliant, angry attitudes, such as Freud generally proposed, but neither is it due to a premature self-control and increased tolerance for frustration, such as Eric Fromm built upon with the toilet training theories. Instead, it is this combination of meeting the excessive demands that are at the same time deemed as legitimate or what is to be expected. That's what's going on. Excessive demands and they're they're deemed to be good demands and what is expected and there's this tension between the two so as you know as the theory currently goes 
the reaction formation that they do, that, 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 that way that they put on a happy, positive front, even while really internally feeling a lot of stress, that drives the anger. Uh, and, and the holding in the reten- the retention um, of the anger and why in a way they, they put on that front of everything is just just fine. Those are the stresses of that we hear of, of the body types and they're concluding with the ones. Now moving into heart types and the psychological roots and key patterns that create stress, for twos. So all heart types have the same unmet central need at a major early stage of development for mirroring. And this display of mirroring, it often begins as early as infancy, as babies begin to mimic individuals around them and establish connections, especially with particular body movements. And the ability to mimic another person's actions allows the infant to establish a sense of empathy and thus begin to understand another's emotions. And the infant you know, establishes connections with others' emotions and in turn mirrors their movements. That's how it's working. And so mirroring establishes rapport with the individual who's being mirrored. And as these similarities in nonverbal gestures allow the individual to feel more connected with the person exhibiting the mirrored behavior. So when this need is not adequately met, the experience for all heart types is that they are not fully seen, not fully recognized or affirmed by or, or understood by their primary caretakers. And if you haven't heard our podcast panelist, we had um, one representative on, Jonathan Bow. He said, I, he said the following, I felt like I became a therapist when I was a young kid sitting there for whether that was for my parents and struggles that they were having with themselves or whether that was with a sibling that was acting out in different ways. I felt like my job was to hold everything together. And so I became a therapist for my family in a very unhealthy way. But when I'm sitting in that seat, trying to be one of the kids, one of the, the one who holds it all together and then learning very quickly, oh, but if I am this superior, moral, great, loving child who's super polite, does all the right things, doesn't do any of the wrong things, while the net continues to get me affirmation. And so even though it wasn't processed, that immediately gave me the sense like, oh yeah, you're loved and you're appreciated and you're valued. And I would add that what is also happening with the the pride inflation that happens for the twos there is that they are like, oh, but I'm going to deny my needs, deny, repress my emotions because, well, others aren't familiar with me needing them. I'm the one meeting their needs to get my needs met. So I am going to push mine down even though I'm super sensitive, right? A heart type. And as Naranjo, he documents, quote, the, it's what, and what we see in twos is this association between hysterical personality and simple repression as the earliest relationship reported between a defense mechanism and a neurotic disposition, and also the most thoroughly documented and agreed upon. So in other words, that this is a sensitive person who is repressing that sensitivity uh, in order to kind of be above it, be valued and loved by others, especially others that maybe they don't trust would be able to recognize and value their expressions of emotions. And, you know, repression is, stands for a defense mechanism where the impulses are, it's repression is different from suppression. Repression is unconscious, pushing down 
unconsciously just not wanting to know what is going on. And there is a deception of self there that twos are doing. So if a two, you know, suddenly runs off and disappears and is no longer in his or her helpful disposition, you know that whatever it is that they're saying one way or the other, it's very likely that they're frustrated that they aren't getting their needs met. And they probably are having a lot of emotions underneath the surface. Okay, threes, psychological roots and key patterns that create stress for threes. So similar to all heart types here is this deficit related to not feeling fully seen or affirmed or connected to the primary caretaker at a critical moment in early development. And threes adapted by completing tasks as a way to be seen and as a way of avoiding the emotions they did feel. They're in the center of the heart, uh, center of intelligence. So that sadness emotion is there. It's the core emotion of all heart types. Just as anger is for body types and fear is for head types. And over time for threes, they really get out of touch with that feeling of sadness. They will basically, without much self-awareness or having done much inner work, they'll just be like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not sad. Um, I, just, I just get things done. Um, interestingly, I think that this is, Neuronho observed this type is characteristically an ESTP on the Myers-Briggs scale. And it's due to their, you know, typically extroverted sensing. So not, not extroverted intuition, but interestingly, their, their extroverted sensing and their tendency to be thinking over feeling. Um, but also interestingly, I think their disposition of perceiving over judging, uh, which is their, it's, takes away some of the rigidity there there and there they can be incredibly spontaneous which i think might be connected to the chameleon like qualities of shape shifting to please whatever context that they're in so while you know and and by the way you're wondering well do all enneagram types line up with Myers-Briggs profiles. There's been some work done in this area. I think um, the personality hacker people do it. Um, they've, they've inquired into it. And there are some, what we found, they've found is there are some correlations, interesting correlations, um, but there isn't really a neat packaged defining way that they do line up. But we find it interesting, you know, that for threes, this profile does, in fact, seem quite frequent. Um, and anyway, this is just hypothesis stuff. And on that connection, we do need more information. But what we do see is that the psychological adaptation of being able to perform and or achieve often does parallel with athletic types as well, you know, as those endowed with high intelligence, also physical beauty. And that's where that passion of vanity, it has to come from somewhere, right? You have to be, you have to be successful in the eyes of our culture through one of these ways. And so their desire to attract attention in these effective ways was you know, almost surely from feeling the deficit in early childhood of just not being recognized for their capabilities. And this, they have this response to show others that they will not be ignored. And, and by the way, for all of the discussion about image management and uh, that, that you hear about threes and the self-deception, there may be another common factor of early childhood experiences for threes that they, they, cause they often report that they adapted their style due to high variations of expectations. So a lot of different levels of expectations from their primary givers in combination with 
stern discipline. So threes are among the most likely of all types to push on through stress. And they're the least likely to show up for therapy or coaching until something outside of themselves and out of their control has stopped the show. And they will feel stress when others on their team aren't working as hard as they are, which is almost inevitable. And it's a very common pattern for threes in the workplace. And they, they feel stress when anything interferes with their tasks. And they feel stress really so long as the task is unfinished. So, you know, you will be, you may be want to communicate with a three and say, it feels like uh, I don't matter to you. It feels like um, you're not paying attention. And they often are not aware of that. So bringing that to their attention can help them. They are literally... Often it's not that they don't care, it's that they are so caught up in their their preoccupation with this obsessive drive often to accomplish, succeed, and get things done. Okay, the last of our heart types, psychological roots and key patterns that create stress for fours. So they, these fours, like their threes and twos, um, heart center of intelligence companions, they have a primary need for mirroring. And, and when the need is not met adequately for a variety of, one of a variety of reasons, this, uh, they have this adaptive strategy to be seen and understood and to maintain connection. And for them, it manifests in this form of, introjection. And commonly, this type has a predisposition to both idealize the love of the parents, as well as to fundamentally reject them for their inadequacies and their failings to live up to these ideals. And, you know, for much of the 20th century, Psychiatrists and psychologists have written a great deal on the ideas behind projection, introjection, and transference. And the basic theory here is that you could say fours have internalized aspects of the unloving parent, or put another way of parental rejection. And this is where the constellation of traits emerges uh, out of this poor self-image and a basic negative self-concept. And it also explains the pursuit of distinguishing, distinguishing themselves and, and proving their self-worth, especially through means which they, as feelers, process their suffering. And, and it's often, that's why it's, it is often through an aesthetic expression and so often why they're called the creative, the romantic, and other words that, that have to do with aesthetic sensibilities. And they can be stressed by anything that relates to their passion of, of envy or lacking, lacking if something lacks in the ideals that they put forth. In the workplace, they will let you know if you aren't working up to expectations, and they might get upset if they don't feel supported or understood, and it may not always be clear how they need <laughs> the support or, or understanding, but they usually are feeling it to one degree of awareness or another. And they will typically have a hard time genuinely being happy for another's success that they themselves haven't also had until they've had a little more maturity or life experience. Uh, they may reject people who don't, you know, they don't deem as, you know, possessing something interesting or um, having as much capability as they have, as they value. And this might mean people who aren't as refined, but maybe people who, who seem shallow uh, or surfacey. 
or, you know, in general too, they're constantly, fours are constantly doing this sizing up in comparison. And that's the core of their crux of much of their suffering and their issue is they have to constantly feel superior to someone or else they immediately automatically feel inferior and terrible about themselves. So there's this battle going on. They feel, they have this disposition of feeling inferior. So they're going to like intensely do something to make themselves better. And often that is through their depth. And they can overdo their suffering and their victimization, if, especially if they're rejected by someone they admire or want to be in good graces with. So those things can stress out fours. And on to our head types. Psychological roots and key patterns that create stress for fives. So like all head types, the central need for fives at an early developmental stage is for practicing. And the unconscious reaction to this lack of practicing that they might have been frustrated by is that they they don't feel fully protected or reassured by their primary caretakers. And so five's adaptive strategy focuses on detaching from their emotions and the need for connecting with each other for other with others, you know, at all. And they create strong boundaries to protect their because they they're also very sensitive. So they they've got precious inner resources and they need they need those strong boundaries to protect themselves. So they minimize their needs which you know reduces the chances of them having to interact with others. And you know and fives they have a hard time with letting go, but when they do awaken to a reality that is more their true self and not the false personality lurking behind the walls of the the mental personality, they become very freed up. They can be incredibly fun and funny and a lot less seemingly, I was going to say rigid, but it's more um, just a, a sense of freedom. But in slightly less clinical terms, perhaps, from some of this practicing, is you know we often hear from fives that boundaries were just simply an issue in early childhood from either end of, of the spectrum. Either they report overbearing parents who didn't respect their boundaries or, by contrast, varying degrees of neglect. And it may well have been benign neglect, you know, in which the child seems to be happy making do on their own. And so, hey, let's leave them alone. But whatever the case, these young emerging personalities figured out how to get by on their own with what few resources they real or perceived they had at their disposal. So sometimes too, they, they found themselves maybe in the middle of intense family drama or intense family trauma. And they learned as a coping mechanism that an effective strategy was to withdraw physically, detach emotionally, and while they don't they they don't ask much of you and they don't want you to ask much of them. So and what we'll see in stress is we see when fives are really feeling stressed, they will get irritable and there might be some frantic activity. And they, they also tend to retreat as soon as they get a chance. And some types of subtypes especially may aggressively retreat. They may stay in bed. They may become as invisible as possible in the room of their choice. And they tend to have a danger of staying in stress for too long because of their choice to isolate themselves from others. And you could make an argument that fives need to connect with their bodies more than any other type when they are in stress because they are these head types, right? And even though they share a wing with four, the most 
intensely emotional and holding it in of all the types, they are uncomfortable with emotions. Uh, one of the ways that they, I've, and I've seen this in a lot of fives, one of the ways they manage and maintain, it's interesting, both their, it's like an outlet from the anxiety they feel in their heads, but it still kind of maintains their ability to be detached. And that's through physical, intense physical rigor. And often it's solo endeavors, just like, like running or cycling things you can do, or if they're doing CrossFit, you know, they, they aren't always joining those gyms. They're, they're doing their exercises, uh, on their own independently. Next psychological roots and key patterns that create stress for sixes right in the center of our head type center of intelligence. And so the sixes needed more practicing at an early key development, development, developmental stage. And in this case, for sixes, it usually centers around inconsistencies with their primary caretakers. So when parental behavior, when it fluctuates between extremes, and it could be, you know, I think when I was first presented with some of this information, I thought it might be like a like stern disciplining and then laissez-faire disciplining. And I'm sure that that is one of them, inconsistency there. I think it could also be emotional, being really warm and connecting and care, and then being very aloof or remote and distant. Whatever it is, the swinging back and forth. So that... It's, it's hard to know, especially at this very, very early age, what is what, what I can trust from this authority. So for whatever reason, sixes develop this, this wariness to how they approach life, and they become, they, they've become on guard for when you know the next real or perceived attack might be coming from. And in many cases, too, there is an internalization that they were not trusted. And it could be as small as not being able to play in their own neighborhood um, or an overbearing parent had to make sure what they wore to school met their approval first or that they didn't trust the child to do their homework. And, and, then, and also maybe inconsistent responses to the value of doing your homework Uh, Or a child, you know, perhaps did test limits and were also met with, again, this range of different responses. So, and, you know, and today there is a lot of, hey, there's just, hey, let them, let a child do whatever a child's going to do and let them just suffer natural consequences. So there's, there's a lot of swinging the pendulum from corporal punishment and physical spankings to this pendulum swing of let life itself teach the child what is right and wrong. And so you can see that swinging between these extremes can be confusing for a very young, sensitive child. And so sixes, they they respond either by compliance, finding ways around the rules is another way, uh, or aggressively pushing against them. And that's, that's how actually the three subtypes of the sixes are probably the most distinctive between each other. So when a six pushes up against authority, what, you know, what the six is effectively doing is, is calling out the fear source so that he or she knows where it's coming from. And in, in stress, sixes, they're doubling down on their fear and anxiety and they're scanning for danger, scanning for anything that might be deceiving, on the lookout for anything that you know might be considered a betrayal. And, and as a result of all of this constant scanning and caution and forecasting, they become indecisive. They can become paranoid. 
And they often can, they'll either freeze or they'll, again, do that opposite of becoming aggressive. But either way, this increases their hypervigilance. And it's either, it's, it has to do with the rules. Either follow the rules and get everyone else to, or become even more stubborn and ensconced in attitudes and thinking that they're right to the point of being dogmatic. You know, we see some sixes just can become openly rebellious, uh, as well as even more dependent on other trusted sources to meet their needs. So they're called, you know, in this traditional literature of the Enneagram, they're called the loyalist. But this is what, that's just one subtype. That's the social subtype. They can also be, you know, the one-to-one subtype is that aggressive type. And the self-preservation type is the type that's more like the warm bunny who's going to cozy up in their relationship to authority. And so sixes, they, um, they, can, they actually, maybe more than any other type, they have a special attachment to stress. And they almost, and in fact, in personality, they may not feel like they're doing their job if they aren't feeling stress. So they especially, they need to do cognitive work and, and discern the difference between what is a real threat and what is a projection, what is a false belief. And finally, for the last of our head types and of all of the types, the psychological roots and key patterns that create stress for sevens. So as children, sevens have a central need to feel a sense of safety and security, especially during a period in which they needed practicing. And so when this isn't met, for whatever reason, sevens react to this by developing strategies and defenses for protection by idealizing the future and dreaming of all of their options. And they, they deal with anxieties and painful feelings by devaluing the boring and idealizing the stimulating or pleasurable. And so in sevens, we see that the pleasure seeking becomes equated with love, equaling the indulgence of their wishes. And, and the search for love becomes a striving for demonstrating their charm and superiority often through wit and also by not being tied down, having their options open. Nerano also found that in many instances, their fathers were fearful types and in the majority of cases were head types five, sixes, or sevens. But what many people don't realize is that sevens are actually quite hard on themselves. So you might see some sevens and you're like, whoa, dude, you are a sunny side up person, aren't you? But inside, they tend to hold in a lot of anxiety and, and they are hard on themselves. And what happens is they increase their activity and they move faster when under stress. And and sometimes they're out to charm others, especially so they, unlike all that, they don't like to be leaders, generally speaking. They also don't like the authority being above them. They seek to flatten hierarchy, by charming others, by being a friend, by being a peer to everyone. So a lot of times when sevens are suddenly put in a leadership position, they can be quite uncomfortable with it. And also they do have this tendency in relationship to their bosses and managers. They have this this tendency to make them laugh and to make them feel good. They're charming them and kind of trying to break down those boundaries as much as possible boundaries or the hierarchy. 
And all of all their actions are basically centered around hiding the anxiety. But what's really important, of course, it shouldn't be the pleasure that they're always seeking, which often can just carry the stress and anxiety right along with them. What they need to do is address the stress, become more aware of it, and just, I'm sorry, we're not trying to break the optimistic party. You know, the motto of sevens is, why feel bad if you can feel good? And I, I think that's, you know, that's a good point. That's a good question. But it's ultimately never advisable to keep running from your stress. And especially if you want to have a healthy ego, and how you have boundaries for yourself and in relationship to your personal stress, as well as how the other relationships in your life may be affected by your constant running from stress. So I hope that this has been a lot of information. It might be worth slowing it down, re-listening to parts of it. Um, And at the same time, I feel like it's kind of maybe a surface job because we are going over nine types in a limited amount of time. There's lots of complexity here in depth that we really can't completely entertain as much as we'd like to be able to. But nevertheless, I do think there is a lot here to chew on, to absorb and think about. And on that note, we will see you next week bringing you some tools and ideas for how to break ground in whatever territory you find yourself in. And here is our benediction and blessing that we've been using in season four. May you always be blessed with walls for the winds, a roof for the rain, tea beside the fire, laughter to cheer you, those you love near you, and all that your heart might desire.